the way to beat native is for Facebook to render a newsfeed just for you that's optimal with the segment of their ads and the content and whatever, on mobile, they have to download hundreds of megabytes of code. They basically pre-download every possible user journey. And then the updates are also super heavy as a result. The web, I can tell you, hey, go to guillermosfacebook.com. You've never seen it before in your life. And it can render just in time with all this amazing you know, code that's been preloaded in the cloud. I can render the perfect optimal page for you. And that's a property I think we need, like, if we want the web to win, I think we need to like maximize our utilization of that property. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Get $100 in free credit at Linode.com slash Changelog. This year, we simplified and improved the Changelog.com setup by further replacing Docker Swarm and Terraform with Linode Kubernetes Engine LKE. Not only is this new setup more cohesive, but deploys are 20% faster and Changelog.com is more resilient with a mean time to recovery of just under eight minutes. Interacting with this entire setup is done via a single pane of glass with K9S. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them and we think you should build anything you're working on, a fun side project or that next big infra work with Linode. The best part, you can get started on Linode with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com slash changelog or text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com slash changelog. What's up? Welcome back. This is Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog, and you are listening to The Changelog. We feature the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. Today, CEO of Vercel, Guillermo Rauch, and JS Party panelist Emma Hussein join Jared Santo to discuss the state of the web platform, why it's so important and unique, where it stands today, what modern web dev looks like, and where the whole thing is heading in 2021 and beyond. Today by two friends, Kashirmo Rauch of Vercel and Amel Hussein of JS Party is the way I'll introduce you. Uh, regular on JS Party, you may know her voice if you are a listener to that. But welcome to the show, friends. Hi, you may call me Lady Amel of JS Party. Okay, Lady Good Amel, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> and Kashirmo, thanks for joining us on the Change Log. Thanks for having me. We are excited today to talk about the web, a beloved platform by all three of us here on this call. And we're gonna talk about where the web has been, why it's important, and maybe even cast forward and talk about where we think it is going. Gesherma, your uh, reputation in my mind is a person who's always on the edge of what is happening today and tomorrow. Uh, longtime listeners of the show may recall you were on the changelog back four years ago now. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but time flies. Does not. Talking about hyper, talking about now, hyper term is actually called at the time. Now and Zite, which I introduced you as CEO of Vercel. Zite, Vercel, same company, rebrand, renamed Vercel is what it's called now. That was a long time ago. You're also more recently on JS Party, talking to Divya and myself about Next.js and what's going on there. But welcome back to the changelog, I guess. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been. And uh, the web has continued to evolve and things have gotten better uh, every day and happy to talk about you know some of the trends that we're seeing and what the journey has been, but also where it's leading. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about what's been going on recently in the web. But first, we want to talk about the web as a platform itself, because as I mentioned, we're all here advocates for fans of the web. In fact, Amel has a podcast called The Web Platform Show. Is that what it's called? Podcast. Web yeah, Platform, web podcast. platform podcast. podcast. We keep it pedantic and simple. There you go. Changelog Trivia. We run the changelogshow.com. So... Uh, things change, but uh, the web also changing. Amel, in your opinion, what's so special about it? Why is it different? You know, why is it better than other platforms out there? Why do you dedicate your life and your work and your resources towards the web platform? Yeah, I mean, I 
I think you only need to have a conversation with me for about five minutes before you realize that I love the web and I think the web is the best. And in fact, my husband is actually um, an engineer that works on mobile platforms and our house is like, you know, um, Mr. and Mrs. More. Smith. Yeah. Because, <laughs> Mr. Know, and Mrs. Smith. Mr. and Mrs. Smith of like, you know, team web versus team mobile. And, you know, he, he's always making fun of me and he's like, well, you know, at least I have a predictable roadmap. And I'm like, well, you know, at least I have choice and <laughs> freedom. <laughs> freedom. But anyways, so the, the web is, is quite literally, in, in my opinion, you know, I think the greatest thing like we've accomplished as human beings. And it, simply because, you know, our archive of information, our access to each other, you know, we've been able to make the world a better place because of the Internet. You know, of course, there's downsides. But the best thing about the web is that it's an open protocol. And so that means, you know, it uses standards and, you know, you, you can kind of hook into it without any kind of middle person, you know, yeah. sans your ISP provider, you know, that's the, the middleman that people are often trying to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the open web and the reach of the web is, is like no other. And um, it's very important that we keep the web open and accessible and, you know, really in a time, you know, during a pandemic, like the web has shown that it's like even more important, you know, and so it's interesting to see companies starting to reinvest in their testing infrastructure for for the web and uh, taking their web presence a lot more seriously because, you know, we're realizing like, yeah, this is this critical thing. And maybe we got a little excited about native apps for a little while, but there's no beating the good old fashioned open, open web. Mm. Curl from anywhere. You know, re- reach from anywhere. There you go. That resonates with me, especially like the permissionless aspect of it. Gishamra, what are your what's your take on? I mean, you've been doing web dev for so long now. Yeah, I'll add to that that um, so the web has this uh, native way of connecting ideas through hyperlinks that I consider to be one of the most powerful inventions ever. I'll echo what Amel said with regards to it's a huge accomplishment of agreement between lots of different parties that will have this standard for connecting applications, documents, websites, literally anything through hyperlinks and a a set of protocols to to drive them. So there's that aspect that continues to be the thing that inspires me a lot. So when we we launched Vercel, the, the main idea at the beginning was this idea of deploying very quickly getting this deploy preview uh, and this URL to share your product with your teammates and with anybody uh, that you want to collaborate with. So all about this idea of just like, let's expose a hyperlink quickly, earlier in the process. And we've, I continue to be inspired because I see so many people taking advantage of this optimization of how you can work, right? Like we nowadays share lots of Notion documents in our in our workplace. We share... Calendly URLs for scheduling time with people. So this idea of the web is an open platform that is connected so easily between strangers and organizations. And what you talked about, which is that I don't need permission to publish this new way of sharing calendars or sharing documents or sharing product previews. It's all built in. And uh, I think no other platform has gotten there. I know that links work to some extent with native apps, but it's always a huge mess. I don't know if I'm ending up on the web, or if I'm ending up in a native app, and right. there's three or four interstitial modals that tell me to download or pay or face ID. And so there's nothing like the web in that ability to connect ideas, people, applications, and documents. Absolutely. I will name drop. VRBO, which is like a vacation rental web, think of it like Airbnb for vacation rentals. And they have a website which has the URL of a vacation rental. And you can share that URL. And my sister shares it with me on iOS inside the messages app. And I click on that and it takes me to Safari, which takes me to the app store. Yeah. To download their app. And I don't want their app because I already know there's a web page that represents this. I click back to (laughs) Safari. I'm actually looking at the web page right there. And all they will put on their mobile detected version of their web page is just like the the picture, the first picture, not all 37 pictures of the place, and then download the app on the app store. And I'm like, this is not what I want in life. This is terrible. Yeah, it's not the, what we're promised, right? Like at exactly. the end of the day, it comes down to user experience. I want to tap, 
I want to get this, you know, experience. If it's limited because I need to grant more permissions to the system, right? Or I need to log in, or I need to pay for something. I, I think that's understandable. Yeah, give a reason. Uh, but um, it has to be a smooth transition. And I think only the web can do that today. And it's still to be seen whether PWA is what takes us all the way through that transition. But I would say any company will see better uh, results when they give their customers ultimately what they want, right? Which is, in my case, I just want to see a vacation rent right away. Uh, and if I want to rent it right away, that's even better, right? Like you, you can make that happen. Yeah, I, I have to echo a couple shout outs to some web APIs that I think have helped smooth, I would say the the link communication in mobile apps, the web share API. I don't know if y'all are familiar or remember it. It's not that old, but essentially it's a way for you to kind of share information with anything from your phone. Uh, so you can actually implement it, which is really nice. Um, works beautifully on Android and iOS. But I, I think for me, like the walled gardens, you know, like the areas where, you know, you're interacting with the web through a device that's perhaps like owned by a proprietary company and, you know, the company has interests in you using their app store. And like, it's, it's just, um, I feel like the web has had a, a tough, really tough battle, you know, um, both with like devices getting smaller and, you know, faster uh, and better to use, right? And like the long arc of the web, you know, how long it takes for things to get updated, et cetera. Like not all websites really caught up with it, right? And so you don't have this graceful, beautiful, like out of, like, out of the box experience. And so there's just so many kind of uphill battles that I've seen for the web. We're still very much in the thick of it. Um, specifically also for new internet users, like folks coming online for the first time, you know, there's like millions of people in Brazil and India coming online for the first time, you know, every year. And, you know, they're kind of learning about the internet through apps. And when I say apps, I mean like native apps that come on their, come pre-installed on their like low-end devices. And, and I can say the same thing for like my, my younger siblings that are much younger than me, you know? So it's just, the web has... A lot of catch up to do, uh, I would say, in, in 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 certain areas. But obviously, like there's no, like if you take the excess accessibility of the web and you kind of power it with like the like the, the, the you supercharge it with the powers of native apps, like that's what you're supposed to get with progressive web apps and potentially projects like uh, Fugu uh, from Chrome, you know, that are trying to you know. But yeah, and I'll say another thing I'll add there. You were mentioning about like there's this APIs that are really powerful and they exist. I think what we're going to see over the next few years is that we're going to catch up to the reality that you can actually create a much better mobile web experience today than you probably realize. And these are some of the things that uh, with Next.js and Vercel we're, we're working on, you know, making it easier and easier and easier to, to get to that point. But when I look at the mobile web, I see a lot of low-hanging fruit, right? Like I see APIs that exist that are not being leveraged. Like you mentioned, you know, like, oh, there's WebShare and there's many others that could be used that are even supported in iOS. I see just low-hanging fruit in the sense of like, the, it's clear that the development team or the creator has been thinking desktop first. And then there is this kind of mismatch of capability that annoys people, like where they might still want to request a desktop site because this function that they're used to using on desktop is not on mobile. So mm -hmm. even though responsive web has grown a lot and like people love it, and it's like, oh, I'm going to make everything responsive. I'm going to make things mobile first. It hasn't really materialized. I, I still see all throughout the web that there is missing capabilities on mobile or things just seem more optimized and better thought through for desktop. So I think it's going to change specifically around uh, verticals like e-commerce where there's demonstrably more growth in page views and growth of page views on e-commerce sites and mobile. Now, conversion is probably much better on desktop or uh, if the user chooses to install a native app. Mm -hmm. But that's in a lot of cases because we haven't engineered the web well enough for mobile. So like performance is not there. So that's another low-hanging fruit example of detail I'd like to point out is a key difference between native apps and mobile websites is just how smoothly 
taps work and how smooth the transition is to the next pain or right. thing that you're revealing or whatever. And that's not some a battle that you're losing because, you know, native has all this, you know, low level optimizations, GPU, whatever. In a lot of cases, you're, you haven't even tried to optimize your mobile website. And that's, you know, like a, a cool example here is hover styles, delayed taps on iOS, especially hover styles that have been left from desktop that have CSS transition. So you tap and iOS tries to show you the entire transition from nothing to hover to the next state. And that's taking hundreds mm-hmm. of milliseconds. So that battle you didn't lose because, oh, uh, Swift UI with you know M1 chip is so fast and the web can't compete. We need WebAssembly 3.0. No, that's just because you didn't optimize for mobile web. Uh, so that's what I'm really excited about. Is it's it's yeah. not just like I know that iOS won't give us every API that we want, and they have this conflicting business interests and security concerns. And but even today, we can make things so much better. So that might come down to tooling to a certain degree because a lot of those things that lack is not because of the uh, lack of thoughtfulness or desire by the developer or the team or the company. Absolutely. Oftentimes it's because of priorities and constraints and money and, and the right externalities, so to speak. And they just don't have either the knowledge they need to even know how to accomplish what you just described, right? How, how to avoid that thing that looks clunky yeah. Or they don't have the time to do it. And tooling really helps there. So we can talk about the web platform, but then you can also talk about web development, right? As a, the principles and practices. So from year two's perspective in 2020, as we're turning the corner to 2021, what was the state of the art in web development? I know there's debates about what is state of the art, but in your guys' opinion, uh, currently, not where it's going to be tomorrow or next year, but like in 2020, what are people using what are common practices? What you know, catch us all up, or at least give your vantage point of what you think is modern web development today. Yeah, do you want to start, uh, Kishermo? Yeah, I, I, obviously, I want to preface by saying we have pretty opinionated viewpoint in that we create a React-based framework, Next.js. Right. It's obviously very popular, but we adversell our platform works on top of the web platform and open standards and we let you import projects like Next.js or any other modern front-end technology. So in that sense, we're also not uh, uh, opinionated. But what we try to do with Next.js is we want to create the state of the art from our point of view or the art of the possible. Okay, what's, what's the best possible developer experience that we can give people? And what's the possible, best possible end-user experience uh, and from those ideas, we we invest in the framework to embed them. So from the perspective of developer experience, I think the state of the art is clearly collaborating on top of React components. I mentioned collaborating because one of the modern trends is for companies, organizations, teams to agree on a shared toolkit, a design system, a set of reusable components that they can build sites, applications, prototypes from, and they can do so very efficiently. So React has enabled the web platform developers to agree on a standard to encapsulate uh, look and feel and behavior. So the best example here is we used to have templating languages, especially on monolithic server side first frameworks like Ruby and Rails, et cetera. And to a great extent, a template language can combine both HTML and CSS into reusable little functions that output strings. And then you have ways of sharing components with a certain look. What React has done in my mind has been this introduction of a greater possibility of composability, especially with hooks. Now we can encapsulate look and also behavior. And if we can even take hooks and sort of share the behavior part and apply them to different components. So it's, it's like playing with Lego bricks that, are, that have effects. So they're like Lego bricks and steroids, so to speak. So to me, the state of the art looks like teams that don't just know JavaScript, HTML and CSS. They also know how to 
encapsulate that knowledge into reusable components. So React as a platform is a reality in my mind. And I mentioned React as a platform because React embeds things that are not very intuitive if you come from like imperative JavaScript, uh, you know, or even other programming languages where like mm-hmm. you have to embed these concepts of purity and there's rules of hooks. So the the shareable behavior bits that I talked about, they have rules that are not necessarily the rules of the language, right? So like how closures work or not work with hooks is always something that like trips beginner developers in React. So to me, the, the, the React platform is here. It's real. It's making people really productive. It's making developers happy. Now, the other side of the coin is, is it making users happy, right? Like because you have all this sophisticated libraries and you use a lot of JS and you can render on the client side and all these things, doesn't mean you have good performance. That's where I think we're kind of waking up a little bit from the hangover of single page applications, huge monolithic bundles, only using client and and not leveraging server rendering and pre-rendering. And that's where a lot of the new trends over the uh, last couple of years. Um, one of the things that made Next.js very popular to begin with was we we gave you server rendering and pre-rendering out of the box. Whereas when you used React, uh, you know, as it came from react.js.org, you had to like assemble it together with Webpack and then you didn't have any sort of server rendering or pre-rendering capability. So the other, like this, the state of 2020 is we've gotten a lot of power but we're starting to to use it in the in the ways that are really performant for end users. And and the trends that are interesting to me there is some somewhat of a return to the server side rendering world, but slightly different because with Jamstack we have server rendering at build time, which is really interesting if you have things that are fairly static. We have server rendering through serverless infrastructure with Lambda functions, like uh, how Vercel handles Next.js server side rendering. And you can combine and mix it with Max technologies like this to make really performant uh, websites. And, and that's where still is a, is a battle and, and web vitals are now coming into the equation to like allow us to measure properly what performance means. Because I think until really until 2020, we didn't have a good idea of like, how do we quantify web performance? Um, so really happy that that's also part of our future. This episode is brought to you by LaunchDarkly, feature management for the modern enterprise, power experimentation in production. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development and operation teams to deploy code at any time. Even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users, wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release, more widely simply update the feature flag and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. Listening to you, I was like, oh wow, you're describing so many of the things that like I you know, I practice on my own like set of teams or like with or within like within our company, things that we practice. So I'm like, yes, check, check, check. That's great. Um, but that being said, I think for me, like plus one to everything uh Guchermo shared. However, I'd like to kind of maybe not push back, but I would say my counter is that I think React definitely pushed forward this whole model of componentization. And I think it's taken it to the next level. I would say React specifically for me is like the API is just getting, I would say more and more confusing and, or, you know, maybe it's trying to do too much, right? With concurrent mode and all this other stuff. Like, I'm not quite sure, like I'm personally on board with that 
like just yet. And, and I'm speaking as somebody who's, you know, used the tool since like early days and, you know, who's generally like a longtime user. So I, I would say that it might be kind of the beginning of like, I would say like a, a shift, kind of a pendulum shift is what I see happening where folks are kind of really going a little more pure Right. So I think React really did a wonderful thing of bringing us out of this crazy land of templating and custom domain knowledge, you know, um, where you're mostly using JavaScript, mostly using CSS, mostly using HTML, but all in JavaScript, you know. Yeah. And, but, you know, but, but I think now we're kind of realizing like the performance, there's, there's a lot of performance gains to be made by like, you know, reducing complexity even in the tooling layer, right? So, like, do we really need virtual DOM, right? Like, I, I'd say that, like, no, right? Um, do we need, like, all these other things? Like, you can architect yourself out of problems that maybe, you know, React is trying to solve. So, in that sense, I would say, for me, it's like an asterisk on that. Um, I don't think React is going anywhere, like, especially, again, with the arcs of the web. But that being said, I think for me, I kind of want to go back to the, the tooling discussion. Like, I think it's the, the, the secret sauce is all in the tooling. Like, I think, you know, abstracting away complexity for developers actually also means a better and healthier web, right? Because a developer is not going to test something on every browser or, you know, make sure their, you know, tools are, or their, their web pages are accessible, right? So the, the, the better our tooling gets and the more widespread that tooling can be, the better the entire web will be. So I think we, we need to really focus on our tooling and yeah, and shifting, like we need to focus on shifting, like shifting people forward in mass, you know, like, how are we going to do that? That's the biggest challenge of modern web development and like managing legacy code and practices. And, you know, we're not all on the same set of tooling. We're not all on the same, right. And, and we don't need to be, but ultimately like the web is moving forward and more so the, the way the web is accessed is moving forward, right? Devices are getting smaller. Like, they're, like the web is in more places now, right? I have like 50 things in my house that are connected to the web, for example, right? Uh, like, so we just need to think about, you know, how we're going to keep moving our code forward with the web. And um, mm -hmm. so I think like, you know, tooling is a big part of that. And so how do we distribute that tooling is the question. Like more effectively than we are now because I think it's very like siloed right now I think the modern web development bubble is too for me it's too much of a bubble you know like mm -hmm. I don't think it's as widespread as we think it is well we're definitely on the inside of the bubble and you know, <laughs> listeners to yeah. JS Party and uh, Amel's podcast like we're definitely on the forefront of that but for people who haven't been so close to the edge uh, you mentioned Jamstack, you mentioned pre-rendering. These are things that are going on. I think the concept of uh, pre-building with all the data that you have before you deploy is like a thing now that's very popular, very much a modern move. Of course, it's also a legacy move that we've just, we've, we have changed it with Jamstack, <laughs> right? We're kind of decorating, we're saying, we're doubling down and saying, we can do way more than just your blog posts, right? Spit out on, into HTML before you put things out. And that's why the uh, advent of things like Gatsby and uh, a lot of the stuff you're doing at Vercel and with Next.js, which is a hybrid approach, is popular. But can you give the old Jamstack 101 to folks, Kishermo, and just get us all on the same page with like what that means and what it implies? Yeah, and I like what Emel said uh, with regards to tooling being the fundamental investment that we need to make. And that doesn't stop at React, but component systems like uh, Svelts and views are also extremely suitable for the uh, modern web. And what we're seeing there as well is that there's frameworks being created on top that facilitate a lot of the features that people actually need on their day-to-day -to, -day to build robust web applications and sites. So Nuxt for view, for example, and SvelteKit for Svelte. They're kind of, we're seeing this kind of new category of tooling emerge on top. Next.js, I think, was an early mover with React, but we're seeing Nuxt uh, for review and we're seeing SvelteKit for Svelte. And that touches on the concept that you're talking about now, which is they're all hybrid frameworks. And for those of you that are familiar with Jamstack, Jamstack was a uh, movement or principle that said, well, the web should be static and but not static in the sense of just like do everything on the client side with uh, JS, meaning you you give an empty index HTML file that loads some JS. But also within Jamstack, 
is the is two other ideas. One, that you should pre-render content, so you should just have it in the HTML. And two, that you should use a CDN. If you can stick to pure Jamstack for everything that you do, you're probably going to have some performance benefits that are not negligible. Because in contrast, you could have a monolithic server in one uh, particular region that doesn't scale horizontally, especially if you haven't invested a lot in your DevOps and clusters and so on. And then you might or might not have installed a CDN and you might or might not be caching in that CDN correctly. So what Jamstack brought was a set of constraints that said, well, it will be static and it will be cached at the edge, right? The problem with that, as it turned out, is people have also very good reasons for dynamically rendering pages. Amen. And also, sites of a certain size cannot just pre-render every page. And together with all of that, when we're talking about mobile web versus native, a tremendous advantage that I see for the web is that when you tap on a link, it can render just in time the page just for you without you having to have downloaded a massive application with all the possible code paths, not just for you, but for every known language, every known variant, every experiment, and every other cohort of users, right? So the web has this magical, and it goes back to my concept of the hyperlink. You go to this hyperlink, and it's almost like a black box. You don't know what's going to come out on the other side, right? And that has this beauty of, I can give you the specific set of code. I can give you the specific HTML and the specific CSS for what you need just in time at that very time. And that's only possible if you combine ideas of Jamstack with more traditional ideas like server rendering. So this uh, concept that we pioneered in Next.js, and this is what, frankly, uh, drove uh, and, and got us the attention from Google Chrome's team that started contributing directly to Next.js because it matched very well what they'd seen internally at Google as being the best ways to scale really large sites and really large applications. It's always with a combination of CDN caching for the parts that are known to be static, but also leveraging this sort of what I call the power asymmetry of the world, which is the average mobile phone in India, which is the Xiaomi Redmi phone, is not going to be as powerful as a server pre-warmed with all your application code sitting on a data center. And not only will it not be as powerful, by, by transferring some of the rendering load to that powerful server, you reduce the battery life, you reduce the download amount that you're putting on that device. So I think one of the ways forward for the web will be to acknowledge that there is not no silver bullet where you say, oh, if I make everything static and if I jump stack this or that, I'm gonna get great performance because you may also limit the ability to customize, personalize, and create very dynamic content just for a certain user, context, country, language at a certain moment. But not only that, as I mentioned with Web Vitals, one thing that we've learned as well in 2020 and, and before that, but it became very clear in 2020 is just because the CDN can give you HTML really quick doesn't mean that you're going to have a fast website. So the, the example that I like to give here is when Facebook launched the new facebook.com built entirely on top of React, which was supposed to be this engineering marvel. One of the, uh, because the open web is so introspectable and debuggable, a developer went ahead and like inspected it and realized that they weren't even using CSS that much. They weren't using box shadow and they were using a spacer divs. And the box shadow one was particularly puzzling to me because I remember the old days of the web where we didn't have the box shadow property yeah. and we had to use background images. <laughs> or oh, not yeah. even background images, we had to use like image tags. And, and Facebook was doing that because they realized that for that particular element that was floating on the screen, box shadow had really bad performance. <laughs> so performance is not just a matter of like you downloaded that box shadow property in line into the HTML really quickly from the edge. That's just, obviously it's gonna help. But then 
begins this other complete new like you know box of surprises or Pandora box of performance and that's where the web vitals uh, metrics that Google has created um, are extremely helpful because if you if you're experienced with backend engineering you know that one of the easy things to measure in this pipeline is okay I'm going to measure the p99 percentile distribution of response times and render times. In fact, github.com used to include this in their status page. Like status.github.com will show you the uh, mean page render time, the P95 page render time, et cetera. And, and you would say, okay, it's 300 milliseconds. And you're like, okay, that's really good. It's like two blinks of an eye or whatever, it's like the threshold of attention or whatever. Right. But then you realize, okay, I gave that to the web browser and now the web browser is struggling with <laughs> rendering box shadows or intercom widgets and GDPR pop-ups and all the layout is shifting and like, and there's three cookie banners and another one to accept the terms of service. Actually, that one is fresh from today. Today, I went to a website. This is a marketing website and I was presenting two blocking models. One to accept terms of service. And I was like, terms of service of what? I'm just right. visiting this website. And the other one is, is a massive GDPR uh, model. And both of those things kind of came in a little later. So right. you're like just starting first, to see it and then they pop in. Exactly. So the first paint, the browser is spending all this effort in like making that first paint. And then it interrupts itself with all this new JS and CSS and HTML that paints on top. And then the background rendering continues. And so this world, you cannot understand with a single metric. That's an insta-close by me. Yeah, you know, I'm not even yeah, gonna waste my time too. with that. I'm just I'm on to the next tab because there's plenty of web pages out there, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so like the web vitals for me, uh, invention is a breakthrough, and it's very important to mention here that they're heuristics, right? Uh, because the only thing that could truly help us here is an AI that tells us the website feels good, you know, or like you just look at your business metrics or something like that. Um, but web vitals are three. One says cumulative layout shift. That's really important because when you load something on the client side that the pre-rendered page or server-rendered page kind of didn't know about, then the layout becomes really messy. And that puts a lot of effort on the web browser because the web browser is like, oh, I did all this effort to paint this pretty picture. And then you're telling me that I have to split it in two and create this new rectangle in the middle because an ad loaded or, or so on. So that one is cumulative layout shift. It's one of the web vitals. And then we have uh, largest contentful paint, LCP. That one is super interesting because it, with single page applications, one of my personal pet peeves was that they always render into a spinner. So it's like, if you're doing edge, Jamstack, et cetera, it's like the edge is like really fast time to spinner. And that's not really going to help your business, right? Like if, if I go to amazon.com and... I have really fast rendering of a spinner, then that's not really good. So that would be like the first paint of the of the pipeline. But what you're most interested in is like how long does it take until the most meaningful paint has been made? So the one that has the products, the buy button, et cetera. And that's LCP, largest contentful paint. And the other one that I'm really interested in too, with, with all this new modern web tooling that we're talking about is that if I press buy, will the website respond at all? First of all, because sometimes it doesn't do anything because the JS isn't loaded. Or, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it takes you to the top of the page with an anchor because the href has an anchor. So you press buy and it just goes to the top and doesn't do anything mm. until JS loads. Uh, or even worse, like... Is that because the anchor doesn't exist yet? Like that element doesn't exist yet when you're clicking it? Yeah, the, the element has not received the on-click handler yet. Oh, so it hasn't been tied all it together. does gotcha. is just go to the top. And, and there's no really, people use the anchor tag, but there's no really anywhere to go because right. the buy button is supposed to do something with uh, on the page with JavaScript. Uh, so uh, first input delay refers also to the fact that you might click and it might not do anything for a very long time because it, it's a still working through loading all the JavaScript. And a stat that gets thrown around a lot, but I think is worth reiterating is 
when you take that phone from India and you, and just mere act of loading JS, just downloading it, parsing and compiling it, that could take, you know, 20 seconds for something that the iPhone can do in like a couple hundred milliseconds. So that first simple delay web vital is, okay, I'm going to tap and it's going to respond to my input very quickly, which is what most people want. And I'm going to preface this by also saying, you know, or caveat this by saying, this are all kind of heuristic large contentful paint is before it reports it. But at least now we say, okay, this three, these three core web vitals, we must all agree that they have to have really good values. So much so that Google is going to start ranking pages, incorporating these measurements, which kind of also closes the chapter on AMP in some ways, because we all probably remember that AMP was not received very favorably because AMP had this property that you could be on a Google carousel only if you'd built with AMP, right? But what's interesting is, and the reason I was never too upset with AMP is that I could tap on those things. I could tell that they were infinitely faster than the web, uh, at least from my experience. And mostly it was due to prefetching and other things. But what's nice is that what came out of AMP was them realizing, for example, that layouts had to be stable. So this new cumulative layout shift web vital comes from that learning of, look, what makes an AMP page be fast, one of the components is that they thought very deeply about a more constrained layout system that made it less likely to have a, a layout shifting around when you first load the page. So in some ways, like the circle is now closed and we can say, you know, if you're good at these three core web vitals, then you'll have, you know, kind of this optimal uh, placement and ranking uh, because you're making a fast website. So it's a way of kind of submitting the proof back into the internet that you have a really fast website. Wow. That was like a, um, like 101 in web performance, like, like a digestion pill in like web performance <laughs> or something like that. Still web developers learn. Wow. Uh, is web that vitals just... finalized? Like, is that, are we, do they agree, agree upon it? Is there argumentation about? I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that they're set because my understanding is that, and you can fact check me on this, is that uh, I think I heard March, but the Google algorithm will start incorporating the core web vitals. So web vitals are many, but the three that I talked about are the core mm-hmm. ones. And uh, and yeah, like we, I started going to kind of this tangent because we're talking about Jamstack. And, and one of the things that uh, kind of comes out of that movement is that you know, at the end of the day, like your edge caching a static HTML is not going to do as much for performance as you might initially think. In some cases, it's, it's super good and like it helps tons, etc. But there's that. And there's also that a personalized web, whereas which, and this is my personal opinion, I think the way to beat native is for Facebook to render a newsfeed just for you that's optimal from with the standpoint of their ads and the content and whatever. On mobile, they have to download hundreds of megabytes of code. They basically pre-download every possible user journey. And then the updates are also super heavy as a result. The web, I can tell you, hey, go to guillermosfacebook.com. You've never seen it before in your life and it can render just in time with all this amazing, you know, code that's been preloaded in the cloud, I can render the perfect optimal page for you. And that's a property I think we need, like, if we want the web to win, I think we need to, like, maximize our utilization of that property because that's where, like, it's a non-starter. Like, you know, uh, mobile native has opposite advantages. In some, in some ways, like, raw CPU computation or maybe GPU access or whatever, they, they might beat us. But on that specific super critical dimension, uh, the code distribution, the redeployment, and that first initial paint could actually be where we destroy mobile native. Hmm. Right. And it, I mean, it, it matters so much with data usage, especially in... Um, totally. You know, like, uh, I would say uh, developing countries, you know, 
where folks are like data is currency. I mean, it's, it's, it's like that in the U S as well. I shouldn't really say developing countries. It's more like, it, you know, data is, is really currency yeah. and people are very conscious of like how much their apps are updating and like which websites are quote unquote totally. fat, fat. Right. Right. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Like the whole, like the web wins on versioning and distribution, right? Like hands down. I would say that it's interesting, like this web vitals is, you know, like I think Google has kind of been playing around with some of these metrics for quite a few years now in terms of like what's important. It was like TTL, like time to first meeting or yes. time to time to first meaningful paint. And then there was like I, there was yes. like several acronyms over the like so past six years. Yeah, and I've kind of like I've kind of stopped paying attention because I just profile. Yeah, FCP even, right? Like we used to talk about first contentful and now it's right. largest, which makes sense, but would they iterate a lot? First meaningful. Right. They iterated a lot and it's fine. Like it, this is, it's all good. I think it's, um, you know, like kind of going back to your earlier point, like it's nothing is one size fits all, um, totally. with the web. And I think for me, going back to like our earlier discussion around like what makes a world-class team or a world-class, uh, like a software, um, project, um, it, for me, it's in 2020 or 2021, right? Whatever. It's software that's progressive, truly, truly progressive at its core, which means that, you know, you are handling for different capabilities and different devices within one software base, uh, within one code base, I should say, right? So that you are like able to do progressive enhancements and progressive What's the word of, what's the opposite of enhancement? Like dehancement? I don't know. I'm trying to think of degradation. Like, degradation. 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 Thank you. Degradation. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can gracefully, de- uh, you know, because really that that's how you're going to win across like the reach of the web, you know, because that's the unique challenge that we have uh, developing for the web is, you know, we don't have these known devices and known constraints, right? Yeah, what do you what do you mentioned about uh, data really resonates with me because I've heard, I'm from Argentina originally, and I've heard outside of the bubble, and there's always bubbles, right? Like, why do we have this bubble? Like, in my country, like, where I grew up, which was outside of the city of Buenos Aires, I was, like, outside of the bubble. But even the province of Buenos Aires is a bubble relative to the rest of the country. And I've heard stories from, out, from other places in the country where, like, people are like, I'm going to go back to the town where I can connect to a certain Wi-Fi to download the app such that they can leave and then use my worst data plan to then interact with the app and there's all these constraints mm-hmm. and have to deal with this long tail of users uh, from our perspective the long tail but if we align our you know software adequately and we empathize with those um, you know other use cases then we make our software reach places that you know we didn't even think possible that's what I think you know whatsapp did really well like whatsapp got massive distribution in Argentina. One of their first clients was that it was like a mobile Java something client, light client that was like less than a megabyte to download. Like you have to really empathize with like all these massive numbers of people mm-hmm. that actually can consume your content if you distribute it correctly to them. And right, I think right. that's another power of the web that will be hard for, you know, an app store ecosystem like, uh, iOS is to, to compete with. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I would say, though, I think to kind of push that further, there's some really interesting things coming to the web platform, Temporal being one of them, which, you know, for those of you who use projects like Moment or other daytime libraries and inter- like time zone management t- t- tooling, it's, you know, being able to actually get that in the browser natively is huge. Uh, I, I think Temporal's in stage three or, or, or sorry, they're, they're, they're hopefully going to be advancing to stage three. It just, it took a, took a long time. There's lots of coordinate, but we'll link it in the show notes. You, you can check it out. It's just uh daytime inter- like support and time zone support uh, coming native to you, which is nice. And that's a great example, by the way, too, of, of the power of the browser in so far there's a lot of code that has already been written, has already been loaded by the web browser instance that why would you try to then ship more code that is not loaded yet, that has to be downloaded, parse, compiled, loaded to do the same thing that the browser already has. So this is like one of the key things of the web that we also need to leverage. One of the um, recent optimizations that we made on XJS was just more advanced polyfilling 
such that we are not giving gigantic polyfills to browsers that already support the modern JS syntax features. Right, right. And this is an example of the browser has already loaded V8 with the capability to use, for example, the class syntax. However, you're investing all this work to pre-compile into another type of syntax and make your bundle a lot larger and then not really reutilizing that which has already been loaded. And that, by the way, is another subtle advantage that the web has against native. So when iOS needs to load a new app, it's just basically like a sandbox of untrusted code that is you know, being run by the app developer. And very little of that is shared with other instances of other apps. However, when you, you know, leverage primitives of the web browser, the web browser is already optimized for caching and rendering a lot of different things like the font atlas and, and different capabilities of JS engines. Uh, it might already have even parse and compile and cache your previous bundle from another page visit. The moral of the story is try to use what's already been loaded and don't try to download it again. You're never going to beat you know, the software that's already running on the device. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with free SSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto-deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex applications with dozens of microservices. If you're a developer or a founder that's frustrated with AWS's complexity or Heroku's high costs, you owe it to yourself to use the $100 in free credits they're giving our listeners to give Render a try. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure as code. Heroku customers running production and staging workloads typically see cost reductions of over 50% after switching to Render. Here's the best part. We work closely with the team at Render to ensure you have zero risk. By giving you $100 in free credits, plus they're going to assign a world-class engineer to your account to offer guidance and answer any questions you have. When you're ready to transition your infrastructure, they'll be there to help you with that too. Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. Get $100 in free credits to try the Render platform, plus a world-class engineer assigned to your account to guide you along the way to send an email to our special email, changelog at render.com to get access to those free credits. All that begins at render.com slash changelog. So where do we think this is all headed? I mean, there's definitely things happening, exciting stuff. There's things that we've learned in 2020 and, and run up to it. Things that happen culturally around the web. I mean, we've seen a lot of the large players really take a stranglehold uh, culturally or socially, or even just in terms of you know web traffic. The pandemic has been a interesting thing to watch. It's been very much a rich get richer kind of a situation with the large players such as Facebook, such as Google such as, you know, insert Fang stock here, really booming, you know, and really taking a large share of the value out there on the web. And we've seen people pushing back and trying to like decentralize, move things other places, et cetera. That's on websites. But in terms of the web platform, are like, are there people making moves to provide more opportunity, more tooling, ways of kind of letting the little people have their place and and do things on the web and flourish like a lot of the big players are flourishing right now oh my gosh i i this is it's like such a big question i was like do you want us to be here all day jerry like, <laughs> answer in 60 seconds or less there yeah you. okay you want my 60 second answer yeah i'll ding you a be customer focused that's my answer like ultimately the web is powered by people who love your 
products, your websites, your apps, your, you know, so build for your customers first and like focus your efforts around your, your customers, your users, um, and you'll never go astray, right? Um, I see too many developers getting either hung up on just things that are really not user facing, right? Uh, and I can give you a really good example, uh, and we might get some get some we might get in trouble for this, but but TypeScript, right? Um, so TypeScript, Uh-oh. TypeScript. I mean, I, if, if if I could put a survey out there for the number of hours that developers have spent like fiddling with their types and like making something work, you know, for a system that like, quite frankly, like what TypeScript has done is incredible, but, but the, but the reality is there's always going to be gaps, you know, and we see that with Lodash and other like things that, you know, the beauty of JavaScript is just never going to really fully be expressed with TypeScript. Right. Um, and so, you know, like just don't spend time on things that your users are never going to experience, like focus on like, like optimizing the code that is going to run in the, in, in the browser. That's going to run in the browser for your customers, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I even have a similar opinion of TypeScript. So <laughs> all our teams love TypeScript, right? Oops. Sorry, Jared. Yeah. I, I have no horse in this game. <laughs> no, so. you don't. But, you know, we have a lot of TypeScript fans, I'm sure, you know. Uh, and I like TypeScript as well. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't dislike it. I mean, I'm starting to like I'm it. I'm actually a huge nerd for correctness systems and mm. proof construction software and, like, uh, checkers, proof checkers, et cetera. But the thing that I'll say is, and I kind of updated my thinking on this recently, I used to think TypeScript is a trap for not thinking about the customer and thinking always about your type constructions, spending endless amount of time on the beauty of your type constraints with no regard for whether you're over-constricting the state space of possible valid programs or or whether you're doing the opposite, which is like writing plain JS, which is under declaring all the possible correct ways of using your software. So I think there's always a balance, like JS plus unit tests constraints it constraints the valid uh, programs to be executed to a certain extent, but that's not enough. So introducing TypeScript is a great thing. It's incremental. You can adopt it progressively, but you can get into this pit of like all I'm doing is focusing on over-prescriptive correctness of a limited version of my software, which I haven't even given to users yet. So, but then I, the reason I say I updated my thing is I realized, well, you could argue that for abstractions too. Like people have a lot of times fallen for the pit of like, you know, I'll write a better React or I'll write a new state management library for React. And so I think the type of developer that'll not use TypeScript wisely might be the same one. And this is my current hypothesis is the one that was like also doing a lot of uh, activities or libraries being written or whatever, and not thinking so much about the, the end user first. Oh, oh, like the, the uh, not invented here. Oh, that's another one. That's another 60 second right. one for you. People <laughs> who don't leverage open source technologies and like try to reinvent the wheel. And yeah, like, yeah. like totally. a lot of folks like really, I mean... Oh my God, the examples I could give you, but I won't. Uh, but yeah. you know, really like just use open source. But aren't many of those great open source libraries actually reinventions of the wheel? I mean, don't, isn't that how we progress? So. Sure. <laughs> we could get into that. That, that <laughs> uh, could be an infinite. That could be an infinite. You know what I've been saying recently, and I really stand by this, is in my mind, the introduction of the idea of a component as a primitive together with functions, classes, strings, et cetera, feels to me very fundamental. It feels to me like when we invented atomic theory in the 1800s, we never looked back and we're not like currently trying to reinvent atomic theory, right? So fun fact, you know, React has this like atomic structure icon. So the metaphor even goes there. But uh, I think, you know, that answers why I think, you know, at some point you realize, you know, this makes sense. This is an industry agreed standard. This feels fundamental. I'm not going to try to reinvent it. And there is a pointless not invented here of, you know what? I'm going to write a better moment JS today. And there's a standards coming out and there's data fence and there's all this other, like maybe there's no, no, no true space. Well, that would be a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, maybe there's no true legitimate space. Maybe there is. Maybe right now there's someone that is solving it for the domain of internationalization or something that I haven't considered previously. 
Mm-hmm. However, you know, we could agree that with a certain degree of certainty that that wouldn't be a good idea today. So I think picking your battles with invention and creativity. I like what uh, Brett Victor motto here, which or mantra, which is inventing on principle. So if you have a principle that has not been thoroughly applied to a certain domain, like direct manipulation in his case, that he can alter a visual representation directly by you know manipulating that representation itself. If you say, okay, my principle has not yet been applied to the domain of TypeScript, then there is room for uh, invention there. Uh, but broadly, I agree with Amel that, I agree and disagree. In some senses, I think TypeScript has created new ways of wasting time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I and, agree. It has created new ways, but I just wanted to say that I don't hate it. I'm, I was late to the game. Yeah. Every time I, I do a big refactor and my app compiles perfectly, like yeah. I feel a lot more confident now with TypeScript, let's say, than I did with JavaScript, right? Like real talk. And so... Yeah, and also I think that the the question about like JS is still being there, I think it's so important because the agility of JS, when you're experimenting, when you're playing with what an API could look like, uh, even when you want to give something to a customer before you know what do you want to build, right? Like there's still so many good places for it. I think we can't be dogmatic about putting TypeScript everywhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would certainly agree. I'm ready to make my first prediction for 2021 now that I'm sitting here listening to you two. And I'm going to go ahead and predict that TypeScript will have reached the top of the hype cycle, um, begin its no, way down, actually, and the, take, no, the takedown pieces, so. oh, no, the takedowns are coming. You think there's no, more? No. Uh, nerds be nerds, so you have some faith. I think the takedown pieces are going to, why I switched off TypeScript is going to be the new blog post for 2021. Oh my God. No, I, I think types are the good parts. It's probably going to have, this is my guess. Like, oh, I like that. I'm not an expert. Yeah, pragmatic TypeScript. Thank you very much. I want to push yeah. pragmatic TypeScript as well. TypeScript, <laughs> yeah. the good parts. Someone needs to write that book. Yeah. It's already happening. I, I recently happening, saw yeah. an article on like how you can, or or I think it was a page of documentation that started resurfacing on like, like type checking has a has a cost in terms of performance. So like there's already a case to be made about like using TypeScript a certain way to maximize uh, type checking performance, for example. And and I think I've already seen some takedowns of specific features. Like you should think I think that uh, we're going to see that, but at the same time, I think we're going to continue to see growth because mm-hmm. so many people that are maintaining larger projects have not yet started using it. And the type system is an area of intense research and innovation in its own. So I think we're going to see more and more uh, very interesting features and capabilities. Another thing I'm excited about is assembly script, the subset of TypeScript that can be compiled to WebAssembly. I think we're going to continue to see traction there. It's gaining support for closures. So it's basically saying like this thing that almost looks like JS is compiling to this tremendously optimal standard that you can execute in safe sandboxes at the edge of the network. That stuff is going to blow up, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's that's going to be huge. Like ed- edge computing in general and edge everything has yes. been it's been growing and and yeah. But I would say I'll, I'll I'll leave our listeners with this one thing. Feel free to like reinvent the wheel. Just do it on your own time. I would say. Like, as long as your website is, like, not optimal for your customers that are, like, you know, you want to make the web a better place for them so that they, like, feel better about using the web on their shrinking, tinier devices, right? So, like, reinvent the next big thing on your own time, you know? Yeah. And that's what I was saying. I'm so excited about Web Vitals because, like, uh, it'll create the possibility for people to say, like, look, this metric is not looking good for us. I'm going to invent on that principle. I'm going to say this new thing got us out of this problem. And and that's having that kind of uh, end user impact that you're describing, right? Like we're inventing because uh, not necessarily there's a better abstraction or better ergonomics or, but we're actually benefiting users too. Agreed. Love it. Love it. Well, Gishermo, thanks so much for coming on the changelog. Amel, thanks for, being wing person, is that what I call you? For being my yeah. wing person wing, here today? Yeah, wing person or wing lady is fine too. Wing lady, I like yeah, that Yeah, we established well. that I am m'lady or whatever. <laughs> m'lady here, so. of JS Party. 
Milady. Uh, thanks for, to both of you for your passion for the web platform, for continuing to push it forward while uh, dragging us along in, in our best practices and helping us to invent things, but inventing them on our own time. I like that. I think I might go invent something yeah. right oh, after yeah. the show on my you own should. time right here. But uh, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we really appreciate it. We'll talk to you guys next time. It's good to be back. Thanks so much for tuning in. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for tuning in. If this is your manyth time, thank you for tuning in for so long. One of the cool things we love around here is our master feed. You can subscribe to this show and all our shows via our master feed. Check it out at changelog.com slash master. If you want to increment on that one more level, check out changelog plus plus at changelog.com slash plus plus. That's our membership. Get the no ads versions of our show. Get closer to the metal. And of course, enjoy supporting us in all of our podcasts. Thanks again to our awesome partners, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. And of course, thank you to Break Master Cylinder, our Beats Master in Residence. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.